Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Get out your Bibles, get out your notebooks, get out your devices if you didn't bring your Bibles. And we're gonna be looking at a very familiar parable as we continue our series, Ears to Hear, Listening to the Stories of Jesus. All right, so my, my assignment today is not an easy one. One reason it's not easy is because all of you know the parable of Good Samaritan already, right? So you're already sitting there thinking, I already know what this is about. I've got this covered, so I'm not gonna listen. I'm gonna check out. I'm just gonna completely tune out and play Clash Royale or something during chapter. I didn't say you could do that. I just said some of you are thinking it. Here's the problem. This parable may be one of the most well-known, but it's also one of the frequently most misinterpreted. Think about how this parable could be misinterpreted. Oh, I get this. I understand this. I just need to love God. I need to love others. I need to help stranded motorists who are on the side of the road and I'll be good and golden, right? Isn't that moral therapeutic deism? Isn't that a works-based salvation if what we're teaching and what we're walking out of this parable with is simply do better, do more? But that's how often we think about this parable. This parable throughout history has been misinterpreted on so many levels. Let me give you one where it's been misinterpreted. Just gonna disagree with Augustine here. No, no big deal, right? So it's always scary for somebody like me when you're saying Augustine was wrong. That's like, okay, well. Anyway, Augustine and others, so I'm mixing some of these together. This is, this is how they would over-interpret or allegorize this parable. The man, you know the story, right? I mean, how many, is there anybody here that doesn't know the parable of Good Samaritan? Do I need to read this first? Yeah, yeah we'll get there, all right. Here's how Augustine interpreted it. The man represents Adam, Going down to Jerusalem, Jerusalem represents the city of heaven. The robbers are the devil and his angels. The victim is the lost sinner who is half dead. So he's alive physically, but dead spiritually. He's left helpless on the road to life. The priest and the Levites represent the law and the sacrifices, or perhaps the prophets, none of which can save the sinner. So the good Samaritan is Jesus Christ, who saves the man, pays the bills, and then promises to come again. So that makes the end the local church who is caring for the poor person who was robbed on the way. And it makes the two denarii, the two ordinances of the local church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the good Samaritan promises he's gonna come again and settle all the scores with that's the return of Christ when he comes back. Here's the problem. That'll preach, by the way. Oh, you, you, could, pre- you could have fun with a pre- as a preacher with that. Here's the problem. The text doesn't indicate all of those things to us. And no two interpreters throughout history have agreed on every little detail. So on one side of this parable, we have moralism, moral therapeutic deism, works-based salvation, do better, you'll be all right, which is not what we are emphasizing. And on the other side of this, you have this over-allegorization of the parable, which leads to a poor interpretation, which is not what we wanna do here at Cedarville. So Let me give you my main idea. This is longer than usual, but this is a more complicated issue than usual. Even though you think you know it well, even though we all refer to the Good Samaritan, here's the main idea. I apologize for its length. Main idea is we cannot justify ourselves. I'm gonna point this out in the text, but part of this parable is because the the lawyer wants to justify himself. So we cannot justify ourselves. We need God's compassion and we reflect God's character when we show compassion to others. You can't justify yourself. This is no moral therapeutic deism. It's no do better, it's no works-based salvation. We absolutely have to have God's compassion. That's the grace of the gospel. 
And when we show that grace and that compassion to others, we reflect the character of God and that's what we're called to do. We're not saved by those works, but because we're saved by grace, we're saved to good works and those good works reflect the character of the one that we worship and serve. We're gonna break this down into two separate questions. So our outline today is two questions. The two questions that are asked in the text. First, how do I inherit eternal life? 25 through 28. Your second question is gonna be, who is my neighbor? Verses 29 through 37. Now, if you are able, would you stand in honor of the reading of our text as we read through Luke chapter 10 today, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and he saw him. He had compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and he brought him to the inn, he took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Now Jesus said to him, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Dear Lord, I pray that today you would help me to be faithful to your text. I pray that your spirit would speak to us all, that we would be challenged, encouraged, convicted. I pray that you would be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Question number one. How do I inherit eternal life? There's no context for this. It just tells us that there's a lawyer that stood up. Because the lawyer stood up, we understand that perhaps the context is that Jesus was seated and others were seated and that they were teaching. Perhaps Jesus was standing, but because there was a standing up, this would have attracted attention. And so this lawyer stood up in this context and it tells us in the text, it gives us an insight and a clue. It says he stood up to test Jesus. Now this lawyer would have known the text of scripture he would have been putting Jesus to the test and he asked him a question. This question's a little odd. He says to him, teacher, which is a good word. There's nothing wrong with that word. Jesus is more than a teacher, but he certainly is a teacher. But then he says to him, what shall I do? Now, perhaps you could read too much into this, but even in his questions, it's what shall I do? 
Is that indicating perhaps some desire to have a works-based understanding of salvation, that I must do something in order to earn my salvation? And then he uses the word inherit. Now, when we think about inheriting, we often think about getting something from a relative once they have passed away and then we inherit. But if we just take this question at face value of what shall I do to inherit eternal life, he's asking one of the greatest questions that we all must ask. What must I do to be saved? How can I be saved? How can I have everlasting life? How can I be with you for eternity? This is a great question. I hope all of you have asked this question and have found the right answer to this question. Jesus responds to him, this is important. Jesus responds to him and he says, what do you think? Is that what he says? What do the televangelists say on TV? Look at how he directs him. Because there's good application for us here. He says to him, what is written in the law? Now he's asking the lawyer what is written in the law and he says to him, how do you read it? So when you have a question, when you're looking for understanding, when you're trying to figure out exactly what's going on and you wanna know what God has to say on the matter, where do you go? Here's my point to you. Jesus directed the person who had a question and was trying to test him. He says, what does the text say? Go back to your Bible and tell me what it says. How do you read it? And so he's pushing him right back into the text. So here's what I wanna say to all of you. We have God's inspired, infallible word, his communication to us through the Holy Spirit, through men moved so that these words can be spoken of as the very breath of God breathed out. So when you have questions and you wanna know what's this life all about, here's where you get your answers. When you have questions and you wanna know how can I be saved, here's where you get your answers. When you have questions, this is where you go. So no Bible, no breakfast. Every morning you wake up and you're hungry, you get in the word because your soul needs the nourishment because we have these sin natures that pull us away from God. So if you're sitting there thinking, I really wanna hear God speak to my life, you go read your Bible. And if you're thinking, I wanna hear God speak out loud, then you do what? Read your Bible out loud. <laughs> Here you go. What is written? So then what does the lawyer do? Well, the lawyer's gonna pass this test. He's gonna pass this test with flying colors. But before I go there, also notice that Jesus responded to the question with a question. Oh, he does this so often. It's brilliant. You're gonna ask me a question and I'm just gonna flip it back to you. You're trying to catch me to see if I'm gonna do away with all the law. What, can, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then the response back is, what does it say? What's written? So then the lawyer is gonna give him his own answer. He's gonna say to him, oh, well, I'll tell you what the answer is. And when he tells him what the answer is, it's you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Now, this is quoting Deuteronomy 6.5. This is the Shema Israel. This would have been repeated on a regular basis. Everybody that had studied the law in Israel would have known exactly what he was quoting here. The only difference in just a cursory glance is that he added mind to what would have been in Deuteronomy 6.5. The heart, the emotions, the soul, the spirit, the strength, the body, and then he says mind, which is used in other texts. Perhaps though, because he's a thinker, he wants to make sure mind is included. And then he says to him, as well, your neighbor as yourself. This comes from Leviticus 19.18. Now, Leviticus 19.18, here in this answer of loving God and loving neighbor, it says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons 
of your own people. Now that's key here. You see the text? Against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself for I am the Lord. So here's what was happening. They were taking this text and they were looking at Leviticus and some were saying, because it says the sons of your own people, they were saying, well, my neighbor is only the sons of our own people. So it's only our national identity. So when I show love to my neighbor, I only have to show love to people who are like me. Now, this is what we do too. We seek to narrow in the confines of all of the commandments that Christ gives us to the ones that we can more easily accomplish and not the ones that are more difficult for us to accomplish. And so here, sons to your own people is gonna come back. But here's, here's what's odd. In verse 28, Jesus affirms the answer. So now if I were writing this text or if I were expecting to have something happen after he says this and Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. I would say, time out, Jesus. Okay, Jesus, this is the perfect moment for you to say you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Come on now. But yet Jesus responds and he says, do this and you'll live. Why? I don't know. I'm not Jesus. Perhaps he knows that we can't keep those commands. I mean, let's be honest. I I can't keep those commands for a day. Love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm sinful, I'm fallen, my flesh pulls me away from that. Love others as myself. Are you kidding me with our selfishness? I I have a hard time loving the people I love the most, like myself, all of the time. The people I'm the closest to frequently are the people you get snappy with, you get short with, because they're around you when you're irritated, when you're tired, when you're busy, all of those type things. Like, we can't do this. So perhaps it was the fact that the law points us to our need for the grace of the cross and for our savior who will clothe us in his righteousness, not our own righteousness. And so he's kind of snarkingly saying to the lawyer, yeah, go do that. Have fun trying because you know you can't do that too. Perhaps he's saying to him, if you're gonna love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, well, that is asking for forgiveness. That is asking for a repentance and a salvation of sorts. Perhaps that's, what he's up to here. Nobody's gonna obey these commands, none of us either. All of our sin stems from a failure in these two areas. When I love myself more than I love God, I do things for myself rather than for God and I violate his commands. When I'm focused on myself, I don't love others as I should and I exhibit a selfishness that focuses on me. All of our sins flow from these two commands. And this is why There are aspirational commands that we seek to do. This is why at Cedarville, this is part of our core values. Our core values, love for God, love for others, integrity and conduct and excellence and effort. That's why what we wanna do is remind ourselves every single day as we see these things on the wall, as we see them on banners, as we see them all around the campus, that our goal, our desire is to achieve the greatest commandment and then the second, which is like unto it. The greatest commandment being because we are redeemed, because we have the Holy Spirit living within us, because we're reading the word every single day, no Bible, no breakfast, then we will wanna live a life that glorifies God and will seek by the power of the Holy Spirit to continually walk forward, stumbling forward together to live a life that loves God more tomorrow than it does today so that we have a long walk in the same direction called sanctification so we look more like Jesus down the road than we did when we first start. A love for God that carries over into showing that same love and compassion for others and that creates the authentic Christian community that we're after. That's our aspirational goal. 
So you can take away as an application just from this text here without even getting to the parable. My desire and my goal should be to love God and to love others. Now we get to a second question. Look at what happens here in verse 29. Verse 29, he says, but he desiring to justify himself. Now we've gone through several parables this semester of people wanting to justify themselves. And over and over and over again, the answer is no. You're not gonna do this. So if you're sitting here in this audience right now and perhaps you haven't repented of your sins and embraced the grace of the gospel, perhaps you think I'm a pretty good person, perhaps you think I'm better than that person, perhaps you're comparing yourselves to others, you're still trying to justify yourselves in your own mind. Over and over and over and over again, the text says, no, you cannot justify yourself. We are all fallen sinners in need of the grace of the gospel and it puts us all on equal playing field. Nobody's worse than another. Your sin struggle is not worse than somebody else's sin struggle. So, so we don't need to do various groups to support all your sin struggles. All of us have sin struggles. All of us need to love God. We don't look at all of our struggles. We look at God. We focus on him. We keep our eyes on the Savior, and we stumble forward together in sanctification, pursuing him. This is what our goal is, not self-justification. Pleading for mercy, which is what he should have done. Instead of saying, I'm going to justify myself here, he should have said, all right, Jesus, you know I can't do that. My bad. Will you forgive me? I'm sorry. Instead, he says to Jesus, <clears throat> who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, it's time to do some dominating in the name of Jesus of this person right quick. So Jesus tells a story. A man, a man. He doesn't tell us who he is. He doesn't tell us anything other than he's a man. He's created in the image of God. All of us have equal value and worth who are created in the image of God. If you look down on anybody that's created in the image of God, you've got a problem. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he was going away from Jerusalem. This will be important in just a moment. And he's going down. We'll talk about what that means too. And he fell among the robbers. They stripped him. They beat him. They departed, leaving him half dead. So this going down, this journey would have been from 2,600 feet above sea level to 825 feet below sea level, 17 miles in length, a rocky winding path with big rocks and caves that made for good hideouts for robbers. This was a well-known dangerous pass. So Jesus is telling a story familiar to them. I mean, Jesus is telling a story that would be like us saying, when you go through Yellow Springs, don't inhale. I mean, it's something that you all would know and you would get the context of the story because you understand exactly what I'm saying without me having to say anything at all. If you're a guest, just don't worry about it. It's all good. <laughs> but don't go to Yellow Springs. You'll be fine. We could go there. They have good food. Just don't inhale. He goes down. And then what happens is a priest comes by, a minister. Oh, by chance, by sovereignty, it's a story, so whatever. A priest comes by. Well, he's a minister. Surely he's going to help him, right? Oh, no, no, no. He goes by on the other side. Why? Here's what we do. Yeah, but you see, if he had touched the dead body, he might have been ritually unclean. And so there's an excuse for why he didn't stop to help. But the problem with that is he was going away from Jerusalem, not towards Jerusalem. And so that doesn't actually work. And he was by himself. And so that doesn't actually work yet. And this is a story, all right? 
It's a story told so that he's gonna be without excuse. And so Jesus is telling that parable. He's casting that story alongside a truth that he's trying to teach. So there's no excuse for the priest. The priest goes by, he sees him and he does like we do. I'm busy and I got my suit on. I don't wanna get my suit dirty. I'm not stopping. I'm not having compassion. So then what happens next? Well, a Levite comes by. So the preacher comes by and does nothing. Now the scholar comes by, the theologian. Oh, surely he's gonna stop because he knows what Deuteronomy and Leviticus both say, right? He saw him. Nope, he went by on the other side. So now Jesus is telling this story. Do you know how much they hated the Samaritans? Do you know why they hated the Samaritans? In 722 BC, Samaria fell to the Assyrians. The Samaritans were half Jewish and half Assyrian because they intermarried at that particular point when Assyria had conquered the northern kingdom. They actually offered to help rebuild the temple and they said, no, you can't rebuild the temple because you've intermarried with others and so you can't have a part in rebuilding the temple. So they said, well, we're gonna build our own temple then. So they built their temple on Mount Gerizim and became a rival religion. So what did the Jews do? You're gonna be a rival religion? They said, we're gonna destroy your temple. So they went, destroyed the Samaritan temple in 128 BC, and so to a Jewish person, the term good Samaritan is an oxymoron. There is no such thing. Let me prove it to you even more as to how shocking it would have been that he said Samaritan. Do you remember when they were confronting Jesus in John chapter eight, and they said to Jesus, are we right in saying that you are Samaritan and demon-possessed? You see what they did there? Samaritan and demon-possessed go together. Huh, okay. Uh, just a chapter back, Luke 9, 54. In that, you have James and John who saw what was happening when Jesus was rejected and their response wasn't compassion. Their response was to say, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them all? There's your compassion, right? This is how much they like. I mean, this is like, who's your biggest rival? Okay, if you're from Ohio State, it's that school up north. But we probably have some guests from that school up north, so I'm really, I like all these schools right now. <laughs> if you're from that school up north, it's probably Ohio State. If you're a Cleveland fan, I don't know what to say. I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. Actually, I'm not kidding. I really do like giving them a hard time. Who's your biggest rival? Who is it that you really just don't like? Who is it from another nationality that you really just don't like? He picked the one that was the worst. Perhaps he picked this one to teach his disciples a point too because they had just said, let's call down fire from heaven to destroy them. And look at what he says here in verse 33. He says here, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and he saw him. And what does he say? Underline this, star this, highlight this. It says he had compassion he had compassion. The end right there of verse 33. Now let's talk about that word compassion because that word compassion is used in three parables. The good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son returns and it says the father had compassion on him and it's used in the unforgiving servant with the king has compassion. Otherwise in the gospels it's primarily used to reference Jesus and the crowds. Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion. Compassion is a word that literally means to suffer together. It means to feel pity together with. 
So this is seeing something and saying, I'm gonna suffer together with this person. I have compassion with this person. This is Jesus looking down at us from heaven and saying they can do nothing good of themselves. The only way they're gonna be saved is if he comes down and dies on a cross in a substitutionary death for our sakes and in our place so that by grace, through faith, we can be clothed in his righteousness as he takes on our sinfulness. And that's the only way we're gonna be saved. So he suffered with us. He had compassion on us. That's the grace of the gospel. That word compassion is not an accident. It's intentional. And then it says the Samaritan went to him. Are you willing to go to them? He went to him and he bound up his wounds. Perhaps he ripped up even his own clothes and he bound them on his, on his wounds to care for them. He poured out his own oil, his own wine. He set him on his own animal and then he walked the rest of this long distance and he brought him to an end. Now think about this too. What if this was a trap? See, if the robbers were smart, perhaps they could take one of their own and make him appear to be half dead and put him out there so that when the good Samaritan came to stop, then they could rob the good Samaritan who actually stopped to help. Perhaps this was a trap. And he didn't care. He stopped. He had compassion. He takes him to the inn. He pulls out two denarii. He gives them to the innkeeper. He says, take care of him. I'll pay you whatever else is needed when I come. Two denarii, one commentator says it would cover room and board for 24 days. Another commentator said two months. I don't have a clue which one's right. But both of those should give us an indication that two denarii, two days wages would have covered room and board for some significant amount of time. This person gave up his time. He gave up his possessions. He was inconvenienced because he had compassion. He says, I'll repay you when I come back. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Look at what he says, the one. Now, I may be reading too much into this, but why didn't he say the Samaritan? Why did he respond with the one? Could he not even get the word Samaritan and good out of his mouth at the same time? Could he not commend somebody who he hated so vehemently? It's the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. There's an admonition for us all. Go and have compassion on others. I thought Warren Wiersbe said this well. He says it all depends on your outlook. To the thieves, the traveling Jew was a victim to exploit, so they attacked him. To the priest and the Levites, he was a nuisance to avoid, so they ignored him. But to the Samaritan, he was a neighbor to love and help, so he took care of him. What Jesus says to the lawyer, he says to us, go and keep on doing it likewise. Think about how our world would change. Think about how our communities would change if our sole purpose and mission was to show compassion to others and that we all sought to outdo others in showing compassion to one another so that we genuinely loved one another as we love ourselves and cared for one another as we care for ourselves. Here's some final concluding thoughts for you. Number one, I think we have to answer the question that the text asked. Who's our neighbor? My answer to you is anyone in need of compassion. So how many of you in the room right now are in need of compassion? I am. I, I like encouragement. I like for people to be nice to me. I like for people to treat me like they wanna be treated. 
I'm gonna suspect that at some moment this week, every one of you will be in need of compassion. And I'm gonna challenge you to say every one of you should be looking out for that person in need of some compassion. And this week, not to earn your salvation, but because we have been saved and because God has shown us compassion, let's go and show compassion to others. There's a whole world out there that needs compassion, some even more than we do. The contrast in this text is between no compassion and compassion. So who are you? It's not whom we should serve. It's not who is my neighbors. How can I be a neighbors? How can I serve others? Point number two is Jesus teaches us that all humanity has value, dignity, and worth. There's somebody half beaten, half dead, created in the image of God, a man. That's all that matters. Our arch enemies should love and care for those people just like we love and care for ourselves. Everybody has value and worth. So if you're here this morning and perhaps the devil has been speaking that lie into your life that you're not loved, you're not worth something, you're not valued, can I just say to you that we have to speak the truth of the word of God into our lives and not believe the lies of the devil who is the father of lies and deceit and we have to say and know that we are of value and worth not because there's something special about us but because we're created in the image of God and because Christ died for us on a cross and at that level it is all equal at the foot of the cross. All of us equally in need of a savior, all of us equally loved. And so when you have those moments where you don't think God loves you, let me just say to you, read the text. God loves you. Number three, the point is not do better. It's not love others and you'll be fine. The point of the text is really that we can't do this without the grace and compassion of Jesus Christ living within us, the spirit abiding within us so that we can serve others. We cannot justify ourselves. In fact, what we tend to do is use our own knowledge of the law to legalistically cut things out. Well, I can't do this, but I can do that. And here's how I justify that. I'm gonna change my theology to meet what I actually wanna do. And so I'm gonna shift the way I even think about all of life in order that I can do what my sinful flesh wants to do. And so don't read this text, don't walk away from this message and think I can justify myself or I just need to go do something to prove myself. What we need to do is just fall down and ask for the compassion of God, which leads us to the last point and to the question that this parable began with. Where's the gospel in this parable? Or how do I inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus is the greater good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who saw us and had compassion on us and came to this earth and suffered for us and gave his very life for us, dying on a cross so that we could be saved. But perhaps Jesus is also the one who was wounded and the one who was beaten and the one who was left for dead. But yet he got up out of the grave three days later, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's coming again. One day, all of these things we hate about this world, they're gonna be made right. One day, all of the things that divide us, one day our flesh that pulls us not to do what we should in following Christ, it's all gonna be changed. It's all gonna be made new. It's all gonna be set the way that it should be. So today we long for, we look for, we celebrate, we praise, we worship Jesus, and we long for that day where he makes all things new, keeping our eyes on him, stumbling forward together, staying in the word, pursuing Christ as a community. Remember, we cannot justify ourselves. It's our main idea. We can't do it. So what do we do? We plead, we need, we recognize our need for God's compassion. 
And then because we've been shown that mercy and compassion, we turn around and reflect God's character in showing that mercy and compassion to others. Not to earn our salvation. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Saved not by good works, but to good works so that we can show compassion to others and lead them to a compassionate God that can save them as well. That's our calling. Dear God, this is hard. Our sinful flesh pulls us away from it, so help us today to lean into your word, to your spirit, to join together in community so that we can live as people who love you and love others, so that you will be exalted on this earth and in this university and everywhere we go, Lord, for your name's sake. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And you are dismissed.